Good morning, everyone. Today we'll be in Titus, chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. Um, We'll be picking it up uh, where I left it off last time I had the privilege of preaching. Um, It's been a while, so I'll start with a brief introduction of the book. But first, let's open our time with prayer. Lord, I pray that you would use me this morning to glorify yourself, edify and encourage your church. Help me to preach your word as you would have me preach it. And Lord, I pray that your word would shine through me um, and that it would um, just be a blessing in spite of me. Lord, you use imperfect instruments, and I thank you for the privilege that you've afforded me to be able to, um, to preach this morning. Amen. So Titus was written by Paul to Titus. Uh, Titus was a co-worker of Paul's who was converted, or he was a Greek convert, who Paul calls in verse 4, my true child in a common faith. This suggests that Titus was converted under Paul's ministry, or that he was brought up from being a spiritual infant to where he is now. Titus's abilities and Paul's trust in them are shown by the task that he gives him. Titus was left in Crete to put what remained in order, whether that was... Um, if Paul had been there already, that most likely didn't mean that it was just all in pieces, but that there was some finishing work that needed to be finished up, and Titus was left to, to oversee that. The letter to Titus is extremely practical. It's given to instruct in setting up the churches and putting them in order on the island of Crete. The instructions are simple to understand and not difficult to obey. If you're wondering how you can be a benefit to your church and the believers around you and you don't know where to start, read through Titus. I would highlight especially chapter 2, but I would recommend reading the entire book. Paul opens his letter with a greeting and then lays out the qualifications of an elder, the greeting being 1 through 4, and then there's the the rest of chapter 1 that talks about the qualifications of an elder, and then the... um, Most of those qualifications are issues of the character of the elder, but there's one skill that's required and two good, two very good reasons given for it. Um, The first, sorry, the requirement being that he must be able to teach sound doctrine, and the first reason for this is so that he can instruct those whom have been placed in his care by God as an elder of the church, and secondly, he must be able to rebuke those who contradict that message. Next, in chapter 2, Paul states in simple terms the various roles and uh, positions, the jobs that all the members of the church can and should do as a response to all that God has done for them. He goes over the good news of the gospel in Titus 2, 11 through 14, followed by a call to preach this gospel with authority and with boldness. In chapter 3, Titus is told to remind the church to model good works, um, once again, reminding them that they do this by abiding in the vine that all believers must abide in to be fruitful, which is Jesus Christ. Chapter 3, verse 9 ties into our text. Um, He warns Titus to avoid, or but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Uh And rather, in verse 8, he tells them to do what is good and devote themselves to good works. He signs off with some instructions and a blessing. In his closing, he says in a sentence in verse 14, um, what he's been saying throughout the whole letter, 
and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. So today our focus will be chapter 1, verse 10, uh, through to verse 16. We'll be examining those who must be silenced, as Paul puts it in verse 11. I've broken up my sermon into three main points. The reputation of those who must be silenced, which is verses 10 through 12, and uh, I guess the beginning of verse 13. The response to those who must be silenced, which is continuing in verse 13 to the end of verse 14. And then we'll take a revealing look at those who must be silenced. So it's three R's to help with memory. The reputation, the response, and a revealing look. So starting with the reputation of those who must be silenced, let's hear what Paul says in verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. These false teachers have a bad reputation. They're insubordinate, which would be them rebelling against the word of God and resisting the authority of those who are placed over them um, in the church. They are empty talkers, the kind that can speak all day without saying anything of value. And it would be nice if after all of their talking, all of their worthless words, that their hearers had gained nothing except an appreciation for silence. But throughout church history, false teachers have demonstrated that all too often they have flowing words and honeyed tongues. They speak well and they have enough biblical terms and wrongly used verses in what they say to give it credibility. By doing this, they fulfill the title deceivers and they show themselves children of the father of lies who also, rather than show us his true nature, disguises himself as an angel of light and has made himself, made his lies believable with a half-truth from the beginning. In verse 10, uh, where it says especially, it's saying here that all these things are true, especially or chiefly or most of all of the circumcision party. We're not told where exactly this circumcision party came from. As far as I've been able to find, their origin is one of three options. They're either Cretan converts to Judaism, they're um, Jews who have wound up there throughout the many, or one of the exiles or the dispersion, or they're members of a group of Jews that was following Paul around and causing all manner of trouble uh, for him and for the early church wherever he went. The, these Judaizers, they had, um, they had success and their doctrine was effective and we can see that um, throughout the book of Acts, where, we see, where Luke chronicles Paul's journey and the churches he's setting up. And we also see it in Galatians, in Paul's response, especially in the beginning where he talks, he so, um, so sternly rebukes them for how quickly they've left their gospel for another gospel, which isn't the gospel at all. Their doctrine is what Paul called empty talking and deceit. They were adding to the gospel by requiring obedience to Jewish traditions, both those given to them as a nation by God and those that they had made over the years. This was especially effective um, in the early church because Paul's practice was to go to the synagogue first and then to preach to the Gentiles afterwards. And many of these recent converts from Judaism may not have been very well equipped to defend their new faith and the freedoms that came with it. 
And, and it would have been especially believable when someone comes in teaching that you have to follow the traditions um, that you've... Sorry. It would be especially believable when someone comes in teaching that you have to keep following the traditions and that any non-Jewish converts had to follow these traditions as well. Like, because of their background and because Jesus being a Jew, it would have seemed plausible to them. Um, and especially for the Jew, because there was nothing wrong with them continuing to follow these commandments given by God to their nation, as long as they were aware their salvation did not come from them, that they did not come from their works, but it was fully accomplished by the sacrifice of Jesus' life and not, not their own doing. Given our, for the most part, Mennonite heritage and culture, I think we should also be able to understand how important traditions can come to some people, even when they are not necessarily or inherently sinful. This deception would have been effective against those who'd come from pagan religions as well. They were already accustomed to doing works to please their gods. And to make it more compelling, imagine someone from your Savior's own people comes to you and says that you have to follow the same traditions that your Savior did. It would have been, um, for a young believer, it would have been difficult to, to reject that or to, to see the problems in that. The effect of this false doctrine can be seen in verse 11. It's upsetting whole families. Doctrine can divide, and in the day, the family was a very tight-knit group. It wasn't just what the average is in North America today. It wasn't two parents and two and a half children, but it was the math. There was the, the head of the household, the husband and his wife. They had their children, but they also had servants and slaves, and very often those servants and slaves were married as well. So a family unit or a household um, could have easily been... Uh, it could have easily included three or four family groups in it, so a total of 20 or more people living in and working out of the home wouldn't have been abnormal. A large part of the culture of the day of the Greeks and the Romans was, a social, was that the social stas- status of the home was more important than the joy of the individual. And so in an environment like that, imagine the upset that it would be caused if people are being taught to be insubordinate, to be deceiving, to be lazy, it would just it'd be like dumping sand into a well-oiled machine. This would have such a destructive effect, or if having such a destructive effect in this world was not bad enough, the eternal effect false teaching has on the souls of those who are deceived is far worse. So guard yourselves. Make sure you're not trusting in your works. You're not trusting in your traditions to save you. Guard your households. Silence false teachers in your home. This can be done by simply not allowing bad doctrine in your home. But what the text is getting at is that false doctrine should be silenced by the bold proclamation of truth. Study the word of God. Learn how to handle it rightly and show yourself a workman that's been approved. That does not have to be ashamed when the master returns. You do not need to know every single wrong answer in order to be sure that you have the right answer. But you must know... Um, you just need to know or you need to understand the right answer well. I find this encouraging because as large as the Bible is, it actually isn't that massive. Most secular trades and college educations would require you to learn a lot of information. And if you stacked up their textbooks beside the Bible, the Bible starts to seem pretty short and pretty manageable. So... It is not impossible to learn and to know what is right and good, so learn it and teach that in your houses. 
Do it so that when someone in your household hears bad doctrine, that they've already heard the true gospel and they know it well enough to recognize and reject counterfeits. These false teachers were also teaching what they should not teach, and they were teaching it for their own gain. This passage, passage demonstrates that, they are, that there are things that should not be taught, things like endless genealogies, myths, and commands of people who turn away from the truth. Anything that does not line up with Scripture should not be taught, and, it should not, and the traditions and the commandments of men should not be taught as the doctrine of God. Useless divisions shouldn't be taught. Things like that the early church struggled with, saying that one was of Paul, one was of Apollos, things like that. They're just, they're not supposed to be taught. They cause damage in the church, and they, this affects the church, households, and each individual believer. These false teachers not only teach what they should not, but they also do it for shameful gain. Shameful gain can include money, but don't think specifically and only of wealth. Power and position are things that they seek after as well. And very often people see the preaching or the, the role of an elder or leadership as a way to get that power and that position. And a person, a, wrong, a wrongly motivated person in a pastoral position can teach all manner of wrong things to convince his congregation that they should listen to him exclusively and that anyone who disagrees with him should be rejected outright. Hearing about the effects of false teaching should spur us on to seek out right teaching, and at any time, if we are teaching, whether the setting is from the pulpit or in a classroom or in your home around the table, we should take care to teach nothing but the truth. Paul warns Timothy in First uh, Timothy 4.16, Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourselves and your hearers. Take his warning to heart. It will save you and your hearers much pain in this life and in eternity. In verse 12, we hear some more about the character of these false teachers. Paul's quoting Epimenides, a Cretan poet and philosopher that lived about six or 700 B.C., um, many people in the day believed that he was a prophet and they regarded him as one of the seven wisest people in ancient Greece. He, yeah, they thought he was just a genius. To be clear, they didn't think he was a prophet of God. All the pagan idols had oracles and prophets who claimed to speak on their particular God's behalf, but, quoting their own po but by quoting their own poet, Paul was able to say, you say this about yourselves, all these things, that they are liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. You say this about yourself, and I would have to agree. He's not being any harsher than their own poet, but this way, yeah, he doesn't have to be any harsher than they are on themselves, but he doesn't have to soften the seriousness of their departure from the gospel. Based on the doctrine that these teachers are said to teach in verses 10, 14, and 16, it seems clear that the false teachers are Judaizers. But this verse, verse 12, it gives the impression at first that they might be Cretans, or people from Crete. This could have been the case, as I mentioned earlier, the origin of these false teachers is unclear. But the point he's making here is that they have these characteristics to a degree that usually one would only expect of somebody from the island of Crete. To Cretanize was a common phrase that meant to lie. The title, Evil Beasts, compares them to actual wild animals, 
living for their sensual desires and being as violent as they need to be in order to accomplish their whatever it is that they want. Um, lazy gluttons is easy enough to understand. They would have been happiest if they could benefit from the work of others without lifting a finger any further than they had to to get food to their mouth. The reputation that this island had and its inhabitants, or the reputation of this island and its inhabitants was known far and wide. And by saying this, Paul was not saying anything positive about these false teachers or their character. So our response, or the response to those who must be silenced. Our second point is the response to those who must be silenced. And it's found primarily in verses 13 and 14, but it's touched on in verse 11 as well. It says, they must be silenced. And in verse 13, therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in their faith. I want to address, oops, sorry. I want to address our response by answering two questions and the objection that the culture most likely would have. First, I want to examine how we are supposed to go about obeying this command. Second, the heart behind our actions, our motivations. And third, I want to touch on culture's objection to it. So how do we rebuke false doctrine? We're told in verse 9 that the elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Verse 9 says they must be silenced, and 13 says they must be rebuked sharply. Do notice how he doesn't say that they must be driven out. He says they must be silenced. Someone with bad doctrine should not teach, but if they are willing, they should be taught. He's supposed to silence every false idea brought by the false teacher with truth. Light drives out darkness, and so right doctrine should silence wrong doctrine. To illustrate driving out falsehood with truth, imagine if I hand you a cup and ask you to get all of the air out of the cup. You have a couple of options. I'm sure you could come up with a few. You could try to make some kind of a vacuum to suck out all the oxygen, but the results might not be perfect and your success is iffy. But alternatively, what you could do is just fill the cup up with water. By adding the water to the cup, you for, all the air is forced out, and as long as the water is in it, air will not be. So to try to take this illustration and apply it, let the cup represent your mind and the air being the world's way of thinking and just everything the culture is trying to force on you all the time. And then the water would be the word of God and thinking in a godly manner. You can try as much as you like, but it's very difficult to force everything out of your mind that doesn't line up with Scripture. Filling your mind with the water of God's word and good teaching will change you and push out the wrong thinking, the bad doctrine, the faulty worldview. I hesitate to say it happens by itself, but because there is certainly effort and intentionality required on your behalf. But as your understanding of who God is grows, and as your faith in Him grows as well, the um, it it doesn't feel like such a hard chore if you when you focus on God the. Yeah, the more you know about God, the more what you know of God and believe of Him conforms to what is true in Scripture and what the reality is, the more your faith will grow almost by itself. So, when this happens, when your faith grows, doubts fade and they lose their credibility. Illustrations have their limitations. 
and this one definitely wouldn't be faultless. But the point I'm trying to illustrate is that the most effective way to silence false teaching is, with, is to teach truth. So why do we rebuke false doctrine? After looking at how Titus was instructed to rebuke false doctrine, and by extension, how the elders should rebuke it in the church and each of us in our households, the next important question is why? What would motivate us to rebuke false doctrine? Why would we take part in such an awkward conversation if we could avoid it? Um, the question, yeah, it's especially important when it's, when in reality it's not as simple as just rebuking false doctrine. There's people, there, there's people and a person specifically who believes it and is teaching it. And if the problem is within your church, you likely know this person and you love them. When rebuking someone, oh sorry, culture's objection to this is that rebuking someone and loving them are two separate and opposite ideas, but I can assure you that they aren't. Nothing could be further from the truth when it's rightly done. Pitting these two actions against each other is a result of our culture and um, just the, the modernity of it, telling us that everything is relative and truth is whatever is true for you. Truth becomes an opinion, pretty much. The Canadian aspect of our culture saying that it's, it's rude to do something like that and you were supposed to be polite. And our North American love of comfort tells us that it will be an awkward conversation that we would like to avoid at all costs. All these objectives only make any sense when you come from a godless worldview. As Christians, we believe in absolutes. We believe in an absolute truth. And we believe that Jesus is absolutely the way, the truth, and the life. That no one comes to the Father except through him. And there is absolutely no other name given under heaven by which men must be saved. As for the manners and the love of comfort, what does perceived politeness and a moment of comfort benefit you if the person you refuse to rebuke goes to hell believing that if they work really hard and do their best, they might make it? If for no other reason they think they might make it because in their eyes there's enough people that are worse than them that, that I don't know, maybe heaven is hell's overflow... Surely, such an inconvenience isn't even worth comparing to the eternal cost, to the false teacher, and to those who hear them and who end up getting deceived by them. At the root of the world's objection is the suggestion that it's unloving to disagree with people. I hope these examples I've mentioned show the flaw in such teaching. To allow someone to remain in error is the most unloving thing you can do, especially when in something that has such eternal consequences and doubly so when someone is trying to spread that error by teaching. How hateful is it to see somebody running headlong to hell and taking everyone with them that they can? How can we not want to warn them of the judgment that's to come? That is the most loving thing to do. Anything else is like not wanting to, not wanting to interrupt some blind man's phone call as he's walking for the edge of a cliff. Sure, what he's doing may be important, but in light of the, the coming danger, the reality, the, the presence of it, it's, it's nothing. So as Christians, to love our neighbor, or we are to love our neighbor, and to do that well and to do that best, we must do what is contrary to what the world would have you believe. The most loving thing you can do for a false teacher and those who are deceived by their teachings is to displace their bad doctrine with sound doctrine. Drive out darkness with light, bad teaching with what is good. 
Paul commands a sharp rebuke so that they may be sound in their faith. Rebuke and correction should always be done with a hope of restoration. If that hasn't been made clear already, our model for um, the Christian should always be aiming for restoration. That is the purpose of the rebuke. It's not to seem smarter. It's not to um, seem better than somebody else. The purpose is that we desire these people to go to heaven. Rebuke and correction, yes, they should always be done with hope of restoration. And this fits with the model of church discipline that we're given in Matthew 18. First, you speak to the person that you are at odds with in hopes of quietly resolving the issue. If that fails, you take some witnesses along in order to establish every word. And if that fails, you speak with the church before he is set out of the church. Every step of Christian conflict resolution hopes for the restoration of the one that you're in conflict with. If you have any other desire besides silencing false teaching and the salvation of the one you are rebuking, please examine your heart before you go to talk with them and repent of any wrong motivations you have, and then go and rebuke them. Too often it can be used as an excuse that, well, my motivations may not be perfect, so I won't go talk to this person. Don't let that be the excuse. And don't... We should not, as Christians, allow sin to be an excuse not to do something right. And if it is a reason for us not to do something, we shouldn't just keep living in that sin. It should be dealt with, and then we should obey the command we're given. Turn the page with me to chapter 3 of Titus. It's chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly, through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We didn't save ourselves. We didn't, by our works, elevate ourselves to the point where we deserve mercy. It is a free gift. It's offered to all, and it's a sure promise. Everyone who believes will be saved. No one who comes to God with a broken and contrite heart will be turned away. There is no sinner so wicked that they cannot be saved. And at your best, at my best, we need salvation, and we needed salvation just as badly as anyone else who has ever lived. There's only two possible outcomes of this life. You glorify God and dis- by displaying His mercy, or you glorify God and display His mercy by Him saving you and making you a joint heir with Christ and enjoying Him in, in eternity, or his justice is put on display in your condemnation and eternal punishment for your sins. No one in history has lived in such a way that they could have avoided hell without God's forgiveness. If there's anyone who's not believed that message, I would encourage you not to reject the opportunity you're presented with in his word today. Turn back to Titus 1 with me, and let's read verses 15 and 16. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Verse 15 gives us a revealing look into the heart and conscience of the one who must be silenced. 
The root of their sin and bad doctrine is a legalistic and self-righteous heart. And the fruit of that sin is a reputation that is characteristic of unregenerate Cretans, the worst of the worst of their day. They live out these wrong beliefs, beliefs and they condemn themselves by their actions. The root of this bad behavior is that... I'm sorry, the next, my subheading is the root of this bad behavior. As a contrast, we're first told about the reality for the pure. To the pure, all things are pure. This is followed by the reality of for the defiled. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and consciences are defiled. A quick note on this verse. This isn't teaching that the pure can do whatever they want and it is not sin. Scripture teaches, teaches extensively upon the call for Christians to live holy lives and conform ever more to Christ and to the pattern he showed in his sinless life. Let's turn to Luke 11, verse 37. Jesus teaches the same principle there, and whenever Scripture speaks in greater detail and with greater clarity, it is a good idea to interpret the unclear or the less clear in light of the clearer and easier to understand passage. So, chapter 11, verses 37 and a little while onwards. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at the table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. The pure are not those who are made ceremonial, ceremonially, yeah, ceremonially pure by many external actions and by good works and keeping traditions. To be made pure, it has to be done by God. It's something that can only be done for you. The Pharisees spoke to, the Pharisees Jesus spoke to, and the false teachers in Crete were guilty of the same form of legalism. They thought and taught that if you do enough external things, you can purify yourself and you will become acceptable to God. I don't know how many of you have had a fountain pen or have had tried cleaning one in the past, but I've got one and it makes for a good illustration. It shows, to some extent, the futility of trying to purify ourselves by our works because of just the... Yeah, you can't get in to clean it with anything. You have to just run water through it. So since the ink is water-based, if you leave it long enough, the water will evaporate and you get what is essentially really concentrated ink and it's powdered and it gunks it up and it won't write anymore. So I ran, I don't know how much water, how many liters of water through it. And to my annoyance, it kept coming out blue. I think after five or ten minutes, I thought I'd finally gotten it all out, so I set it down, and a minute later, when I thought I'd give it one more rinse just for good measure, it came out dark blue again. Apparently, in that time, more of the dried-out ink became wet, and, yeah, it was dark blue ink once again. All that to say, if there's uncleanness in our hearts, there's no amount of work that we can do to cleanse ourselves. You can't force enough actions or make yourself be a good enough person. Your heart has to be cleansed. You need a regenerated heart. The false teacher shows the defilement of their heart and conscience when they try enforcing the law and traditions upon themselves and others. 
for all the washing that they try to do, sin keeps coming out, like my unused pen. This also demonstrates that they do, not, they do not yet understand the gospel and how we are purified by the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Like the Pharisees, the Judaizers are concerned with what goes into themselves and how that will defile them. Jesus taught to the contrary, saying that it is what comes out of a man that defiles himself. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, and by extension, our actions and inactions tell much about the state of our hearts. The things that are pure to some and defiled to others are matters of conscience. Their adherence to Old Testament food laws and to the traditions that the Jews held in addition to the law. I say this in light of Paul's comment about the false teachers being members of the circumcision party in verse 10, the Jewish myths and commands of the men that they are, um, commands of men that they're devoted to, as verse 14 tells us. Romans 14, 1 through 6, is a good example of a few matters of conscience that the early church ran into and how Paul told them to deal with it. So please turn with me there, if you will. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the other person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who, despise, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. So these matters of conscience, these examples, holding some days above others and eating meat offered to idols, they're, they're exactly that. They're matters of conscience. They're not sinful, but we may be convicted of one way or the other. And... Very often we think our way is the right way, or at the very least the best way, which is usually the case for what we do, because how often do you do something if it's, you're convinced that's the wrong way of doing it? So remembering that, that there are matters of conscience, let us remember to show grace to people who disagree with us on those issues, on issues of doctrine, things that are central, like the gospel, there, there isn't room for disagreement. Paul makes that clear in the introduction to Galatians, and it makes it clear by the fact that he tells Titus that these false teachers have to be rebuked. They must be silenced with good teaching. It must, what they teach that is wrong must be replaced with what is right. So having looked at the root of this bad doctrine, let's look at its fruit. So if we go back to Titus chapter 1, and we flip to verse 10, or, sorry, not verse 10, that's where we started, uh, to verse 16. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. The external result, or the external is a result of the internal, and the fruit that is born matches the root. No one expects to find apples on a rose bush, and you would not expect an unregenerate person to live a godly life. Likewise, you would expect a Christian would live a godly life. And while you wouldn't expect them to be perfect, the overall pattern should be a continual upward growth. As 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image 
from one degree to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. These false teachers are not unlike false converts. They profess to be Christians, but their works betray them. James chapter 2 talks about this same problem. But, um, yeah, let's turn there. Chapter 2, verse 14. Um, Yeah. So, what good is it, my brothers? So, chapter 2, 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and be filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. The works of these false teachers testify to their unregenerate heart. They draw near to their they, sorry, they draw near to God with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. In part because of because with an unregenerate heart they have no motivation to do what is good and in part because without faith it is impossible to please God. So in light of all that, in light of seeing these false teachers, the doctrine they teach and the effects it has, I would exhort you to look for and, look for and encourage elders who are... Look for elders, or look for and encourage elders who are qualified and able to rebuke the many who would deceive you I encourage you to grow in your knowledge of God and practice discernment in your homes as you know the word of God, as it changes you and you conform to the image of Christ. Um, Just, I would encourage you to practice discernment. Grow in your knowledge of him and be changed by it. Recognize false teaching and rebuke it with with true teaching. So with that, let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, I would ask that you would help us to know you more. Guide us and strengthen us as we grow more like your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would help us to live out our faith daily. Let it be a fruit that comes from us being soundly and firmly rooted in you and your word. I pray you would protect us from false teachers and help us just to hold firm to what we've been taught. I pray this in your name. Amen.